0: Hello, welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, We are currently going through some of the stories uh, Lovecraft wrote in the early 1920s. Um, And this particular episode will be looking at the Nameless City. Um, As with the previous episode on the picture in the house, we're kind of getting some some new ideas that are going to have a long-standing influence on Lovecraft's fiction. uh, For the picture in the house, it was Arkham, that particular location, the Miskatonic Valley. Um, although not too much of that story appears all sorts. I think the backcountry, the backwoods kind of cultist is something that does, we do see again in the Dunwich Horror, of course. Um, but The Nameless City, uh, this one introduces uh, co- uh, a few ideas we see later on. First, uh, obviously, uh, the mad Arab Abdul Hazarad, the Necronomicon, the famous uh, quote from the Necronomicon um, that says... That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons, even death may die. Of course, a major role in the Call of Cthulhu story, um, and the idea of a of an ancient civilization, where uh, the story of that civilization is sort of told through mosaics, through the art of that civilization. We see that in the man- at the Mountains of Madness. Um, So we have uh, a lot of elements, even if you include like the Curse of Egg as a Lovecraft story, which I I suppose we should, kind of the idea of of, of lizard people uh, is here too. This story also kind of calls back to some earlier tales, kind of like Dagon almost, in which you kind of bump into this ancient antediluvian civilization that goes back Way back, you know, millions of years, not not thousands of years. The way a lot of explorations into civilizations, which at the time were quite common. I mean, that's the late 19th, early 20th century was a time of a lot of the world becoming finally known. Uh, whether it was Central Africa and the search for the, the, the Nile, um, the Himalayas, you sort to get exped- expeditions into t- t- Tibet. <clears throat> Australian backcountry, a lot of these are places. You know, Antarctica, of course. These are places Lovecraft will go in in some of his works. Um, but um, there, at the time he was writing, they're being unveiled, and so it's not that hard to imagine ancient civilizations existing there. Um, now, this one is set in in the Sahara, essentially, and the vast majority of this story is an exploration. It really is just a straight-up story of exploration until we get to the final effect, the final, I guess, punchline of the of the story, which is that that these creatures are still with us; they're still alive. Um, but most of it, most of the story, and it's it's fairly long compared to the ones we've been looking at. It's sort of 12, 13 pages in the Klinger edition. The actual is only 10, um, but you know, 90% of it is is just the build-up to the final. Um, Realization and, uh, and it's all exploration. So I think this is a really great story, and that it really kind of prefigures Mountains of Madness in that it really is a story of, of, of people searching out something unknown for just regular reasons, and then they come across some, some truth about our his, the Earth's history. All right, so that's, that's sort of my introduction to the story. Um, this was written in January 1921. It first appeared later in 1921 in The Wolverine. Uh, it was reprinted after Lovecraft died in Weird Tales in November 1938. So it was only published once in his lifetime. Um, but I think it's a really, really important story. It really does fit into the, the kind of Lovecraft mythology quite uh, nicely. It, it maybe was triumphed. It was overtaken by other works, more well-known works. But this is a, a must-read, I think, for, for a variety of reasons. Most importantly, maybe, because it does introduce the the necronomicon although that's not the first book you know we got the, we had the panoptic manuscripts for instance before so it's not the first time lovecraft had you know this tomb of ancient knowledge it's just this one that reoccurs um is, is first talked about here as is abdul al um so uh so our explorer is in the desert he's looking for this this city in the remote desert of araby um you know looking for the nameless city um, it's old, and he seems to know it's old. As he's seeking out there, uh, Lovecraft writes, it must have been thus before the first stones of Memphis were laid and while the bricks of Babylon were yet unbaked. There is no legend so old as to give it a name or to recall that it was ever alive, but it is told of in whispers around campfires and muttered about by grandmas, in um The tents of sheiks so that all the tribes shun it without wholly knowing why end quote so that's another trope we see a lot uh, and something i've been talking about a lot which is the vernacular knowledge right the fact that certain knowledge is about the earth's past or uh, strange occult traditions uh, magic you know the the outer gods whatever it is that that knowledge of that is held by people right so i think this is really a core interest of lovecraft is is living traditions of ancient knowledge uh, contrasted with the uh, the locked away books in Miskatonic Library, right, which you're not supposed to see, that the librarians guard very carefully, that people you know read only rarely, if at all, and that becomes kind of lost knowledge. Uh, so that knowledge, although written and preserved, this is a really I can it's kind of kind of interesting in terms of just how knowledge is preserved, uh, especially for a modern someone who's as modern as Lovecraft. And that you know, we think the literate tradition is more enduring, we think the literate tradition survives, is better at remembering, right? And in a sense, you can print something in a book, but if no one reads the book, if the book is hidden away or locked away or, or forbidden, it does become sort of lost and no one really knows that it. it's not lived anymore. And that's true of of course, countless books, right, that maybe were only read by a few specialists in certain fields, if at all, anymore. Um, But this is contrasted to then the living traditions, the living traditions that are passed on by word of mouth, which, again, the moderns deemed as kind of an inferior form of of knowledge uh, continuity, right? The oral traditions, right? That Somehow it's it's too flexible. We lose uh, facts. It becomes uh, corrupted if it's an oral tradition, right? It's not trustworthy, right? And I don't want to get into the whole discussion of how historians and writers have used oral traditions to... To explore truth. Just want to say that, you know, the general approach to it by I think most people who think about it is, yeah, of course the book's better. Right? My students certainly think that way. When I tried to teach them about oral traditions and non-literate societies, a lot of the opinion was, well, that that's not really good enough because the only way you can really carry on a civilization or an idea or knowledge is through the written word. When obviously that's not true. Written words, you know, written words are one way, and it's not always necessarily the best. So here it's, it's really the working-class Arabs, the lower-class Arabs, who know about this city. And, and even though like the, you imagine the literate class in the Arab world had forgotten this. Now right after this, we're given our, our introduction to Abdul al Hazarad, the mad poet. And we're told he doesn't know about this directly, he dreamed of it. So this is, of course, what we see in the Call of Cthulhu, where dreams become a way of passing on knowledge. Of course we have the dreamland tales and we have Lovecraft's own dreams which are an important part of his formation of his stories. But um, here he dreams this. So it exists. It's a real thing. The city's obviously real because our narrator goes there. But Abdul has read first uh, learned, gets knowledge of it through a dream. And that's when he puts together that couplet that we all know so well that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die. So this is our ancient history of the city. It, it's all vernacular or, or supernatural in the case of Abdullah Hazrat's dream. Now, with these, uh, as I'm calling them, vernacular traditions in this, this podcast, uh, there tends to be a, a me- method of survival of certain ideas. And that doesn't mean that the people there don't fear it or don't appreciate the wisdom in, in keeping the stuff silent. It's just... Stories get passed on, and you can't avoid some knowledge of being passed on generation to generation. It doesn't mean you don't shun it, right? It's like the shunned house, the story we're going to look at later on. Uh, In fact, Lovecraft uses the word shunned early in this tale, writing, I should have known that the Arabs had good reason for shunning the nameless city. The city told of in strange tales, but seen by no living man. Yet I defied them and went into the untrodden waste with my camel. And then he says, uh, I'm the only one who's ever seen this. I got there. I witnessed it. I've seen it. And it's horrified me. So the Arabs were right to shun it. Right. And, you know, it's it's it is a story of forgetting in a way. But it's also had this only been preserved in the books, it would have been easier to forget it. I think that's partially where Lovecraft's thinking is on this, that if it is just in the Necronomicon or something, you can lock that away or you can burn those books or. Or, or forge it, right? Or do something to abolish that knowledge. And there are examples, as we'll see, coming up in other stories of that actually happening. Once you have a vernacular tradition, now, once it's passed on by word of mouth, forgetting is, is almost impossible, right? Shunning, though, is possible. That, that it's, it's almost like the kids saying that house is, there's a witch living in that house or whatever, right? Shunning is possible, and it happens all the time, but uh, forgetting isn't uh, nearly as possible. And I just think that's a really fascinating kind of pirouette on this idea of vernacular or oral traditions being somehow less reliable for carrying on knowledge and preserving knowledge when Lovecraft seems to think they are just as good, if not more effective, at doing that because they can't be erased. They can't be forgotten. So pretty quickly, we get to the the city he doesn't spend too much time in the desert so the vast majority of this tale is an exploration of the city itself it's different layers it's different levels it's a descent story certainly as it becomes more awesome and ancient large and and mysterious and, and things are sort of unveiled over time i think that's that's kind of how things are in picture in the house as well where you know as as the story unfolds more is learned right and and you know it's I think it's more linear here in that we do sort of get the surface picture of the city. And then it's only much later on when he gets into the bowels of the city that he starts to see the mosaics and the artwork. And he's able to start to piece together the history. It's like exactly the same trope he uses in, in The Mountains of Madness. But another thing we see again in Lovecraft's work is the strange geometry, right? this I mean, I never totally got uh, what he means by this Cyclopean geometry or non-euclidean geometry what that even would mean um you know is does he mean like everything's not right angles maybe i mean but i think euclidean geometry you know has ang i don't know what it would be it, really and i haven't heard a good explanation of what he's really after um, he never really explains it he always just calls it cyclopean which just because it just means the ancient right or you know of, of the ancient greek i think it comes from the ancient greek but uh you know this anti the non-euclidean geometry i don't know what that would mean can it even exist it's it's kind of like the color out of space right how can we imagine a color that's not in the spectrum of visible light and even if it could be that we wouldn't have never we wouldn't be able to see it but yet these characters are able to see this kind of color that's never existed before and seen by human eyes um this is the way he describes it in this story um the antiquity of the spot was unwholesome and I longed to encounter some sign or device to prove that the city was indeed fashioned by mankind. There were certain proportions and dimensions in the ruins which I did not like. Quote. So that's how he describes So he doesn't go all full in with anti-Euclidean here but it's kind of the foundation of it there and it's just he doesn't like it. It's, it's like Arthur German's face. People just don't like it but they can't quite grok why they don't like it. Um, another thing that happens to our narrator as he gets in towards the city and into the city is he starts to have dreams, he starts to have nightmares. Just like Abdul Hazarad. maybe he visited or got close to the Nameless City, and that's why he had the dreams. Um, Now he starts to compare this then with other ancient civilizations. Quote, to myself I pictured all the splendors of an age so distant that Chaldea could not recall it, and through the Sarnath, the doomed that stood in the land of Menar when mankind was young, and of Ib there was caverns of grey stone before mankind existed. End quote. Now my question is, how the hell does he know about this? It's another thing Lovecraft has done in his other works, especially his later works, where he'll have this narrator, who's just a professor at Miskatonic University, or something like that, will be able to talk about Stuff like from the Dreamland tales, right? This is Sarnath. OK, if you take the Dreamlands as some sort of antediluvian Earth civilization, that can be reached via dreams. OK. So it is in Earth history, so it's 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 there. But it's so far back that there's no records of it. I think that's the whole point of it, right? So how would this guy, just a, an explorer, know about this? Unless he's been digging around in, in some of these other ancient texts, right? He's and in the Necronomicon or other books that maybe recount some of these, these tales. Um, but if you want my thoughts on the doom that came to Sarnath, that's the, the story mentioned right here. Please check out my episode on that. I'm just asking the question I even wrote in the book here. How does he know about this? And it must be through his studies, right? Or maybe he heard it from, the, you know, the Arabs or heard it from someone or the, somehow that story got carried on too. But somehow he has knowledge at this time of Sarnath the Doomed. So not to, not to belabor this, this episode too much with a, a chapter or paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph description of his explorations. It's enough to say that he, he goes deeper and deeper, clearing what he needs to with his tools, going into the caverns and getting deeper into the, into the city. Although there's plenty of evidence of primitive religions of sorts, um, palaces, temples, and things like that. And that's something he's obviously interested in as an explorer. It's also revealed pretty early on that this is man-made, obviously, that there are artificial buildings, artificial doors, things that had actual functions for some sort of person, some sort of people at one time. I think one thing to remember in this story is that there are layers, right? The deeper city doesn't look like the upper city and, and the different, you know, as you get higher up towards the surface, it looks more humanistic and as you get farther down, it's its scale is different its architecture is different its feel is different it's, it even has art right so like the upper levels don't have art quote on the walls and roof i beheld for the first time some traces of pictorial art of the ancient race curious curling streaks of paint which almost faded or crumbled away and on two of the altars i saw a rising excitement of bays of well-fashioned curvilinear carvings so this is the first mention of art uh, previously he makes, he makes the point that you know that this seems to be man-made, but there wasn't art, there wasn't murals, there wasn't uh, bas-reliefs or whatever that um, would give him a tool to interpret what he's seen. But I really think that I think the thing I really want to focus on in this part of the story, reaching about the halfway point, is the madness of exploration. And I think that's a very Lovecraftian um, trope: is the ridiculous, like not only like. You shouldn't explore. You should instead try to forget this or never try to learn in the first place. So exploring itself is a bad idea and a bit mad to even try to do it. But that, of course, Lovecraft, I think, must have this curiosity because he writes about these curious characters all the time, foolishly doing these explorations. But more so here is that the exploration itself seems to drive the narrator a bit mad. He writes... It is only in that terrible phantasms of drug or delirium that any other man could have had such a descent as mine. The narrow passage led infinitely down into some hideous haunted well, and the torch I held over my head could not light the unknown depths towards which I was crawling. I lost track of the hours and forgot to consult my watch, though I was frightened when I thought of the distance I must be transversing. There were changes in direction, of steepness, and once I came to a long, low-level passage where I had to wriggle feet first along the rocky floor, holding my torch an arm's length above my head. So a lot of this is about the struggle of actual um, going at these explorations. But the, the, the key point is he's saying like only someone who's totally on drugs or delusional could have done what I did, right? Which suggests he is a bit delusional. And he admits this at the end of the paragraph writing, I did not think I noticed it at the time for when I did notice it, I was still holding it high above me as if it were a blaze. I was quite unbalanced with that instinct for the strange and the unknown, which had made me a wanderer upon earth and a haunter of far ancient and forbidden places, End quote. So a couple of things there. One is he does seem to have a madness to him. He's, he's, he seems to be confessing he's insane, but also that this insanity predates this story itself, right? Because he is someone who explores these ancient places and he goes out and seeks it out. Now, why does he do this? Well, the next paragraph tells us why he did this or does this. And that is he's been digging into those books Right. So before he ever talked to the Arabs about where's the nameless city, he f- must have found some reference to it in books. And we get a list of all the books that he read that inform his various expeditions to various places. Um, quote, the cherished treasury of demonic lore, sentences from al read the mad Arab, paragraphs from the apophrical nightmares of Damascius, the infamous lines from the delirious image du monde of Gautier Demens. A real person, by the way. I repeated queer extracts and muttered of Afrosybe, and the demons that floated with him down the Oxus. later chanting over and over the phrases from one of Lord Dunsany's tales. Once, when the desert grew amazingly steep, I recited something sing-song from Thomas More until I feared to recite more." And, uh, that Thomas More is not the Thomas More who wrote the, uh, the Utopia. He's not that Thomas More. It's M-O-R-E. Thomas More wrote Utopia M O R E. This is an 18th century figure. Um, obviously, Lovecraft was deep, or actually, or no, early 19th century. Sorry. Early 19th century. Closely identified in Ireland as Robert Burns as with Scotland. I'm not really that familiar with him. But so he's got a mixture here of, fa- of, of fantastic invented uh, stories like uh, the Necronomicon. Abdul Ahazred, he's got some mythical figures that seem to have some texts associated with them, some real old books, and even more recent writers such as and real-life writers such as Dunsany. But they're all providing puzzle pieces that our narrator is able to piece together to identify these locations, and then in a type of madness, he seeks them out and seeks out the truth behind them. So as he goes, so so he keeps digging down deeper and deeper, um, kind of like a paleontologist going down to the different layers of deep history in the earth. He's going down. So anyways, the deeper that he goes into the city, the more sophisticated it gets as it goes down. And it also gets dark, and there's a very handy device that Lovecraft uses where he lights the lights the tunnels with a quote subterranean, an unknown subterranean phosphorescence. So this becomes the way that he's able to see as he goes deeper and deeper into the into the tunnels. And not only does it get more sophisticated, he starts to see art. He starts to see artwork, um, quote, Rich, vivid, and daringly fantastic designs and pictures formed a continuous scheme of mural paintings whose lines and colors were beyond description. Um, So now we have art. And I think we need to explain why there's no art higher up. So one explanation could be that those are more primitive societies that don't really have art, although we know from cave drawings that that doesn't really exist. So maybe it's people who over the centuries built their civilizations on the foundation of the nameless city. And... Also, are engaged in this act of forgetting and forgetfulness and therefore they abolish that history by not recording it right but once you get down to the civilization itself we start to get documentation of what this society actually looked like um and what they are are reptilian creatures at least that's what the picture shows and his original impression is that these are allegorical figures or they're religious beings or they're 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 depicting something but they're not um, taken from life. This is the very, very same issue that happens in Dagon. Where in Dagon he sees these uh, huge creatures that can slay a, a whale with a spear. It's like no one can be that big. This is just uh, allegory of a allegorical painting of a whaling society. Okay, whatever. But then when he sees the monster, he sees the creature at the end. He realizes, no, nope. You know <laughs> that's really how big they were. Um, So this is a great paragraph, though. Quote, they were of a reptilian kind, with body lines suggesting something of the crocodile, sometimes the seal, and more often nothing of which either a naturalist or a paleontologist ever heard. In size, they approximated a small man, and their forelegs bore delicate and evidently flexible feet, curiously like human hands and fingers. But strangest of all were the heads, which presented a contour violating all known biological principles. To nothing can such things be compared. In one flash, I thought of comparisons as varied as the cat, the bulldog, the mythic satyr, and the human being not jove himself had so colossal and put troop forehead yet the horns and the noselessness of the alligator like jaws placed the thing outside of all established categories i debated for a time the reality of the mummies half suspecting they were artificial idols but soon decided that they were indeed some paleogen oh wait i got that wrong i got the context wrong so he definitely he sees mural paintings at this time but they're beyond description at this point but what he where he sees these monsters are in cases, wood cases with glass, and their mummified remains of these, these, these somewhat human, somewhat animal, um, hybrid creatures. And of course, I, I think a lot of people have thought about how, the like the Hellenistic world, or a lot of mythologies have these half-human, half-animal creations, and they could be interpreted in various ways. One way I've seen it interpreted is that there really is a living history of bestiality, and therefore, with that. It's not hard to imagine you know half human half animal creatures uh, another is that it's it's a suggestion of the lack of a strong divide between animals and humans that this kind of modern idea that there's animals and humans i really was of christian i guess it's not even like i guess in the modern era with darwin we kind of go back to a continuity between animals and in humans we're all on the same tree of life we're all related But certainly in the Christian era, you have this strong division between the animal world and uh, and the human. You know, God creates humans and animals to be be used by humans. But maybe in a pre-Christian worldview, that of the Greek gods, that of uh, ancient, you know, goddess traditions or whatever, there's going to be a... Less of a conception over more ecological world if you will um, less of a conception of a division between the human and the animal in that case you know that You're going to get the traditions that, that create these hybrid creatures because humans at the time didn't see that stark divide between the human and the animal so There's different interpretations. I've seen of this. I can't tell you exactly where they just um, I just came across them at various times um, So anyways, you have these mummies um, you also have a lot of wealth right um, you now, the mummies, for instance, have enormously in, or gorgeously in, enrobed in the costliest fabrics and lavishly laden with ornaments of gold, jewels, and unknown shiny metals. Okay, it's at this point that we get the description of the murals, and our narrator kind of presumes that these murals are are sort of reflecting these these mummies in a way, right? And that they, they're sort of like totems; that they really are sort of totems of the civilization. He writes, the importance of these crawling creatures must have been vast, for they held first place among the wild designs on the frescoed walls and ceilings. With matchless skill, had the artist drawn them in a world all their own, wherein they had cities and gardens fashioned to suit their dimensions. I could not but think that their pictured history was allegorical, perhaps shewing the progress of the race that worshipped them. These creatures, I said to myself, were men, were to men of the nameless city, where the she-wolf was to Rome and some totem beast is to the tribe of... The Indians. And then we start to get the history of the city through these murals. And this is the same device he uses at the Mansions of Madness. And I think it it is kind of contrived. It's not entirely believable as someone who knows how hard it is to document history and and construct a historical narrative from written sources. The idea that you could look at a series of conveniently ordered panels and tell the history of a civilization is a little bit um, preposterous to me. It's like if, if you didn't know anything about uh, the, the passion story and you saw like the stations of the cross and a picture for each station, right? And you, what is it? it was 12 or so. And you, and you saw those and a mural across the hallway. I, I doubt if you didn't know anything about Christianity, Jesus, anything, you didn't have any connection to it. It's entirely new to you. I doubt you could really construct an accurate description of what's going on there, Right. The, you know, that, something like that is a meditative device. It's a prayer device for people who know the story already and can experience it visually. It, you know, it's, if you were just to see them, I don't think you could say really what's going on there. Maybe you get some moments, uh, you're like, oh, that's what's happening there or there, but putting it in together, I don't think you could. And you certainly couldn't put together the theology of Christianity. Um, but here at, and in the Manchester of Madness, Lovecraft uses this device because, I mean, the alternative is even dumber, right, that you could, like, find a book. Or, you know, some ancient guide will come up and say, Let me tell you the history of our civilization, you know, in some language you can understand. I mean, that's just as preposterous. So it's a little bit more realistic than maybe the alternatives available to him. But, you know, Lovecraft doesn't really want to waste his time having our narrator like. He wants to tell the story, the, the history of the city, really. And the only way he can do it is through these murals. So I forgive him for doing it, but I think. When we look at it, it is kind of, it doesn't quite pass the, the smell test. Right? Um, so what's the story we get? It's a tale of a mighty seacoast metropolis that ruled the world before Africa rose out of the waves. And once again, we get continental drift before. Um, when did we talk about that? We talked about it before, continental drift. Um, certainly established as scientific fact in the 1950s, but still being theorized in the early 20th century when Lovecraft wrote this. Um, But anyways, before Africa rose out of the waves and of its struggles as the sea shrank away and the desert crept into the fertile valley that held it, I saw its wars and triumphs, its troubles and defeats, and afterward its terrible fight against the desert, when thousands of its people, here represented an allegory by the grotesque reptiles, were driven to chisel their way down through the rocks in some marvelous manner to another world, whereof the prophets had told them. So he thinks it's allegorical. Um, because he doesn't believe that these reptile creatures are, are real, um, he's going to be undone by the, the truth of this fact. But I think an interesting thing here too, and just in terms of natural history, is, is certainly the Sahara was a recent creation. In, in actually, in human history, you know, humans were on the planet when the Sahara wasn't a desert, and it's you know, actual the history of civilizations was affected by the desertification of the Sahara, of the desiccation of the Sahara. Where we actually saw pastoral nomads being pushed out into the Sahel and and you know the present day Sahel as they retreated the expanding desert if you go back not that long ago um, the Sahara was not only not a desert I think it was like like a jungle or something right or a relatively um, um, wet region and that's just that's just natural history but he still thinks it's all allegorical so it goes uh looks into more of their history through these murals, this painted epic. Um, and he still thinks it's allegorical, even though we continue to see people depicted as these strange reptiles, he still thinks they are, are allegorical. But he also starts to get some evidence of their customs, uh, that they seem to have a written alphabet. Again, a lot of details here, which I find hard to believe he could have gotten from the murals, especially when he's, it's all being litten by this unknown phosphorescence and subterranean phosphorescence. Um, but anyways, um, but the, here here's kind of the interesting point is he doesn't see death or funeral customs. And again, I, I think this is just something that even if you're able to like record what's there, the fact that you would notice there's no death or funeral customs and make a note of it is kind of striking. It's like, I have seen many, you know, museums and Art, you know, displays of art, been to the Met. You know, I never go through and say, oh, where's the funeral displays? You know, it's, it's just not something I think of. You know, if I see a funeral display, I go, oh, how do we interpret this? But if I don't see one, I usually don't think, why isn't there a funeral display there? But our guy's really perceptive, I guess. I mean, the reality is Lovecraft wants to point out that these things don't die, or apparently they didn't die except by violence, plagues, or or other sorts of... of um, non-natural deaths. Uh, so the next kind of images he sees depict the pinnacle of this civilization, um, quote, a paras- pa- scenes were almost too extravagant to be believed, portraying a hidden world of eternal day filled with glorious cities and ethereal hills and valleys. At the very last, I thought I saw signs of an artistic anticlimax, end quote. So and then immediately, the pictures become less skillful. And this becomes a sign of the decadence of the society. So even though this is like a historical record of the civilization, it's, it seems to be actually drawn at that time in that civilization's history. So when the society begins to become decadent and less skillful, the quality of the art goes down, uh, right? Which I think it's is nice. Because had this all been written, had all this been painted in the post-decadent period as sort of a rem- rem- remembrance, then it would all be bad, right? But that's not the case. So the quality goes up and down. So the history of these murals is is in, in thousands and thousands of years. Quote, they seem to record a slow decadence of the ancient stock coupled with a growing ferocity towards the outside world from which it was driven by the desert. The forms of the people always representing by the sacred reptiles appearing to be gradually wasting away, though their spirit as shown hovering Around the ruins by moonlight, gained in proportion. Emaciated priests displayed as reptiles and ornate robes cursed the upper air and all who breathed it. And one final see, terrible scene showed a primitive looking man, perhaps a pioneer of ancient Harmon, the city of pillars, torn to pieces by members of the elder race. I remember how the Arabs feared the nameless city, and I was glad that, this, that beyond this place, that the gray walls and cities were bare. So essentially, here we got a history of a civilization that. Uh, that is pushed into this this underground city by some outside force, kind of like the Doom that came to Sarnath. A very similar story there. In fact, the Doom that came to Sarnath is, of course, mentioned in this story directly. So you sort of have that motif there, but then you have a society becoming decadent, just like again, Starnak and and, and decaying, blaming, and then the blame coming above the priests. The, these reptilian priests are cursing the upper air and all who breathe it. So he's cursing those who push them underground. Again, just like um, Sarnath, where there it's the sea, the people of the sea that are being blamed. So when he's done with his history, he comes to a new passage, and he just realizes the size of the caverns underneath him. Amazingly massive. Uh, he writes at one point, um, such as one might fancy when gazing down from the peak of mount everest upon a sea of sunlit mist behind me was a passage so cramped that i could not stand upright in it before me was an infinity of subterranean effulgence so just a massive size right and as he spends time here he begins to realize that the depictions of the reptilian creatures that were shown as human scale you know assumed the scale of the context was human scaled and they're not because he now realizes that these tunnels, this ancient city, the deeper levels of it, where these reptile creatures lived was massive. So that changes how you interpret those murals that actually these are massive creatures as, as well, not not human scale. And I, I think that's really kind of well done and fairly clever on Lovecraft's point, uh, from Lovecraft, uh, on Lovecraft's part to to play with the reader that way. and. The narrator is just as shocked as we are to realize that this isn't just an ancient civilization that looks a little bit different or was using the reptiles as an allegorical figure the way the egyptians used birds on the head of horus however no uh, they really are reptiles but not only that they're really huge and they're really massive in this city it's not just a archaeological discovery it's actually something that's going to change fundamentally our perception of the history of humanity on the planet so then he, he goes to kind of a theological, not, well, maybe not theological, but a religious explanation for this. And he says, so the tunnels that he had to crawl through are for the believers, and the major, the huge caverns are for the gods. And the reptiles depict them, the gods. And the why make the cavern so small, the crawling cavern so small, is to force you to kneel, he writes. I thought, curiously, the loathless of the primal temples and of the underground corridor... Which were doubtless hewn, thus out of deference to the reptile deities, they are honored, though it perforce reduced the worshippers to crawling. Perhaps the very rites had involved a crawling in imitation of the creatures. No religious theory, however, could ex- easily explain why the level passages in that awesome descent should be as low as the temples or lower, since one could not even kneel in it. As I thought of the crawling creatures whose hideous mummified forms were so close to me, I felt a new throb of fear. Mental associations are curious, and I shrank from the idea that except for the poor primitive man torn to pieces in the last painting, mine was the only human form amidst the many relics and symbols of primordial life. So uh, while he's playing with this religious interpretation, he kind of throws it out as not really viable, not really fitting the evidence before him. But nevertheless, he's driven by curiosity. So he's mad. It's already established that he's mad. He's... This madness had drawn him to, to explore other places that he probably shouldn't have. It's led him to know about Sarnath and Menar and all that stuff. It's led him to study the works of Abdul Hazarad. Uh, and of course, it's led him to the Nameless City and led him to investigate it beyond what a reasonable person would do. Uh, so curiosity, um, he write the way he writes it is wonder drove out fear. All right. Uh, again, we see this again and again in Lovecraft's story, like the, the stupid investigator. All right, so before getting to the climax of this tale, um, the, I want to talk about Klinger's comments here on The Nameless City. He says, this story is the first which Lovecraft squarely addresses the mythology he was to explain later. I don't know if that's the first, I think there's others, but it's, it's a good one to, to say that about. He not only describes the existence of an elder race and a civilization predating humans, specifically mentioned in Necronomicon and its author as a central plot point. Later tales will further elucidate the vision of elder races. But here, in a truly terrifying tale, the experience of a naive explorer who discovers the existence of such beings is recorded. I I agree with all this except naive explorer. I think there's textual evidence here that he's not that naive. He knows about Sarnath, he's read the Necronomicon. He is, is uh, it seems, investigated other places. He's gone to other sites. So he is not naive. He's actually fairly experienced in this, this game. And whether that makes him intelligent or not is, is another matter, but he's, I don't think he's naive. I think he, he's not entirely unschooled in what, what should be expected. If he knows about Starnath, he knows about antediluvian non-human creatures uh, that, that existed on the planet before. All right, anyways, on to the climax of the story. So he uh, finishes his descent into the, into the nameless city, and he basically falls fully into to madness. Uh, whatever madness he already had, I think it suggests he already has quite a bit of madness. He says as much early on in the story, like if I even go beyond this point, only a mad person would do that essentially. Um, but, you know, he, he kind of is driven over the end by a sound. This is what it says, is what the narrator says. In another moment, however, I received a still greater shock in the form of a definite sound, at first which broke in the utter silence of these tomb-like depths. It was a deep, low moaning as of a distant throng of condemned spirits, and came from the direction in which I was staring. Its volume rapidly grew, till soon it reverberated frightfully through the low passages, and at the same time I became conscious of an increasing draught of cold air, likewise flowing from the tunnels in the city above. And then this leads him into his madness, which uh, basically makes the re- the narrator fairly unreliable in the last couple of pages. Uh, he's screaming. He's trying to crawl away. He has this vision of of a uh, quote murderous invisible torrent coming at him. Uh, he's trying to fight his way against that. He starts babbling this couplet by Abdul Al Hazred this that which that is not dead which can eternal line with strange eons even death may die of course that couplet is talking about you know this you know the, the not just the relics of these civilizations or these old gods or these old beings being alive but their reality they're still there just like the shoggoth and the mountains of madness or just like cthulhu or whatever um and this conquering of death another lovecraftian theme which we saw you know, even in the last story the picture on the house and then the narrator becomes reliable he even says only the grim brooding desert gods know what really took place um, as he tries to scramble in the dark and and get out of the city and, and escape but essentially he's being chased by the quote he Hat, distorted, grotesquely, panopied, half-transparent, devils of a race, no matter my mistake, the crawling reptiles of the Nameless City. Mm. Um, and then uh, he seems to escape. It, well, he must escape because he writes this, and he says he had visited the Nameless City. He gained enough sanity to, to record this document. But the final words are a bit ambiguous and a bit strangely worded. Quote, as the wind died away, I was plunged into the ghoul-peopled blackness of Earth's bowels. For behind the last of the creatures, the great brazen door clanged shut with a deafening peal of metallic music, whose reverberation swelled out to the distant world to hail the rising sun as Memon hails it from the banks of the Nile. So yeah, he seems to escape. But the strange thing is the door closes behind the reptile. So that seems to be between the narrator and the door. Um, so uh, the two big, I guess the, there's three or f- maybe three or four big revelations in the in that. One is that uh, this nameless city has has various levels, including one of, of gargantuan proportions. Second, that the uh, reptile creatures are real, kind of monsters or once were. I guess you could have a little bit of a rats in the wall thing going on here, where it once was. A civilization but they've been driven mad mm. kind of like all the shagas sort of get driven mad or, or how um, you know you, you certainly see that in the lurking fear and other tales of descent. and that theme is supported by the fact that we do have a tale of decadence here we are told in the murals that this society had went decadent and then over hundreds of thousands of years millions of years in the aftermath of that you might see an even deeper descent. but they don't die so they're still there and they're still filled with hate and anger and and all sorts of emotions um so yeah that's those are some of the big kind of fearful findings that our narrator you know digs up by going into deep history so i like this story i like the story's take on deep history i like that it does that uh we've seen hints of this before i think for instance the the juan romero story hints at a deep history that's quite compelling, but he never quite goes that far. I mean, we we just get hints of it. Here, he actually has a character go into the, he gets closer to the reality and lets us see more of this ancient traditions and and tunnels that seem to connect different parts of the world and traditions and, and, and all that. You know, I still think the mystery of the Juan Romero is a little bit more fascinating for me because it does connect real existing traditions together in some kind of antediluvian network of ideas. Uh, this is a little bit more contained in that sense. But it's so much more well done. And, and just like the picture of the house, the tension builds up very, very nicely. Both of those stories, this and picture in the house, are both stories of exploration of very different types. One is genealogical and eugenical. The other, I guess, archaeological and occult and i think it's also it feels like a mature story if you've read moans of madness and you know how he spends pages and pages describing the murals and the architecture of this of, of these old cities you know he's starting to do that here he's starting to show that he wouldn't he doesn't do this much in some of his earlier tales doesn't go into this much detail he keeps it more mysterious this is much more of a like a mature Lovecraftian story and the amount of detail he gives just to the, all these different aspects of it. Right? Um, obviously important because the first m- not mention of the Necronomicon directly, but of Abdul Hazarat, who, of course, is the author of it. A quote is made from it. So the Necronomicon is, is real, even if it's kind of retconned in, you know, if we, we have to sort of retcon it in. Because I don't know if Lovecraft had the idea of the book my name yet, that's gonna come later, but it's certainly retconned in here. Um, but yeah, great, great stuff. A really kind of a, a an eerie story. I, I think the picture in the house is scarier uh, just because of the creepiness of the old man. But nevertheless, I really, really like uh, The Nameless City. It's one of his uh, best stories from this period that I'm looking at right now. And there's a lot of great ones. Um, I'm not gonna to try to rank them, I'm not gonna to try to rate them, I'm not gonna do that kind of stuff, But it's, it's one of the best of this period, I think. Um, so, anyways, uh, next up is The Quest of Ironon. Uh, it's another Dream One story. It's a little bit shorter. Still one of the longer of these early Dream One stories. So, we'll see. Contrast nicely with Seliphys. Um So, anyways, that's going to be next. But if you have any thoughts about The uh, Nameless City, let me know. Leave your comments below. Send me an email. Send me a Twitter. Uh, you can send an email to 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so thanks for letting me share my thoughts about The Nameless City with you. Uh, if you haven't read it, you really should. It's a really uh, quite a nice read. I think especially the just the Descent into Madness, the dis- the, the Madness of Exploration, the, the Slow burn of it all is quite good, even though it's not a long story. The audiobook's 30 minutes, it's still within that is a, is a rather slow burn, so it's a, it's a lot of fun, too. So, um, check it out if you haven't. Um, and I'll see you next time when I take a look at the quest of on